0: Welcome back to the Land of Desire. Picking up where we left off in our series on the Dreyfus Affair... A Jewish officer in the French army, Alfred Dreyfus, has just been convicted of treason and banished for life to Devil's Island in the middle of the sea. In this episode, we'll follow the series of shocking revelations which unmasked the true traitor and the conspiracy formed to cover it all up. Commandant Georges Picard was about to receive the promotion that would ruin his life. Back at the section of statistics, Colonel Sander, the director of the section of statistics, was gravely ill, and Picard was the top choice for replacement. Born like Dreyfus in the territory of Alsace, Picard had led a respectable life in the military, working below the commander of the armed forces, Raoul de bois During the trial of Alfred Dreyfus, the chief commander, Boisdèvre, had designated Picard as his man, observing throughout the trial and reporting back to the military. With Sander ready to retire, it only made sense to transfer Picard to the section of statistics, if only to calm Boisdèvre's fears that the horrible Dreyfus affair might someday come back to life. Sander reassured Picard on his way out that he wasn't to worry about Dreyfus. If you need any evidence to convince people, you need but ask Commandant Henry for the small file which was transmitted to the judges in their chamber. This, of course, was the first time Colonel Picard had ever heard of such a secret file, but it didn't come as much of a surprise, and Picard wasn't curious enough to check. It wasn't until March of 1896, nearly one year since Dreyfus had landed on Devil's Island, That Madame Bastian's bag yielded something astonishing. Torn into thirty or forty pieces was a small light blue paper, commonly used to send telegrams, known in Paris as a petit bleu. Reassembled, the telegram was a note from the German military attache Schwarzkappen to a spy asking for detailed explanations to certain questions about confidential information. On the other side of this telegram, the address of the recipient, Monsieur Le Commandant Ferdinand Walzen Estaragi. Colonel Picard had discovered another traitor in his midst. Yet his reaction is mysterious, even to this day. Rather than report his discovery of a second spy to his superior, Picard remained silent as he tried to put the pieces of this mystery together on his own. Who was this mysterious Colonel Esteragy? As one article in The New Yorker put it, Esteragy is one of those subjects in the history of espionage who are so obviously guilty that only the geniuses of counterintelligence could look past them. Esther Agy had done everything short of wearing a name tag on his shirt front reading, Spy. Esther Agy was a layabout, drunken army major who had wasted an illustrious family name by chasing women and gambling like a madman. He was always in debt and plotting his next source of income when he wasn't busy ranting about the French army. Gee, I wonder whether he might be tempted to sell secrets to the Germans. The Petit Bleu, which Picard discovered, marked the end of Schwarzkoppen's correspondence with Esthergie. For the past few years, Esthergie had passed information of various usefulness, but now he was a desperate man, demanding more and more money for less and less valuable intelligence. Having lost his side gig at the German embassy, Esthergie now set his sights on a job in the Ministry of War. Meanwhile, Picard, having come to a dead end, set up a one-on-one with the chief commander of the armed forces, his old boss, General Boisdèvre. Weirdly enough, Boisdèvre took the discovery of a second spy in stride. Eh, we got a traitor in our midst. Keep investigating him, I guess. Uh, okay. So, Colonel Picard asked for a tiny peek at those job applications Esteragy kept submitting to the very people investigating him— and what Picard saw in the handwriting blew his mind. esther wasn't a new, second spy. He was the spy. esther had written the Bordereau, that document which had convicted Dreyfus of treason. esther had sold state secrets. esther was the traitor of France, and the one responsible for the crimes which had sent Alfred Dreyfus to Devil's Island. Confused, It was at this moment that Picard remembered what he'd been told during his first week. If anyone had doubts about Dreyfus's guilt, they need only consult the secret file which had been shown at his trial. Opening the folder, Picard was shocked. This was nothing. What, a mention of some scoundrel D, which could refer to absolutely anyone? Where was the irrefutable proof? These phony letters from a French police officer? Picard put two and two together and realized, Esther Agy was the real culprit and Alfred Dreyfus was an innocent man. For the rest of his life, despite everything that was to come, Picard would never waver in this belief. Picard immediately prepared a thorough report for General Boisdelf. Handing it over in person, Picard described everything he had discovered, the Petit Bleu Esteragy's handwriting sample, the Bordereau, the lack of evidence in the secret file folder. Boidef listened calmly, almost distractedly, until Picard mentioned the secret file folder. What? Why was it not burned as had been agreed? Other than this note of alarm, Boisdelf had nothing to say. Take it to the second-in-command. See what he says. The second-in-command gave only this advice. Keep the two affairs separate. What? How could anybody possibly keep the two affairs separate? Understandably, Picard walked away from his meetings very confused. Nobody seemed to care that Dreyfus was innocent. For that matter, nobody in France seemed to remember Dreyfus at all. Rotting away on Devil's Island, the only people thinking of the pathetic creature were his friends and family. That is, until a rumor appeared in the newspaper. Alfred Dreyfus... Had escaped. In the weeks following Dreyfus's arrest, there emerged one of those heroic, forgotten characters in history Matthew Dreyfus, Alfred's brother. Matthew Dreyfus might be the greatest brother anyone has ever had in the history of time. Because throughout all the Kafkaesque nightmare of hatred, confusion, fear, and bureaucratic vortex, Matthew Dreyfus never stopped fighting for his brother's freedom. His entire life was put on hold for over a decade. Matthew couldn't enjoy his own life, his friends, his family, knowing that his brother was imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit, dishonored for an act he didn't do. After the crushing blow of Alfred's conviction and deportation, Matthew set to work at once, rehabilitating his brother's legacy in the hopes of a retrial. In the beginning, this was a very lonely task. It appeared that we were no longer like other people, that we had been cut off from the world of the living. The first person who wasn't a member of the Dreyfus family to step forward in support of Matthew's cause came as a surprise. It was the director of the prison in which Alfred had stayed while awaiting his trial. The prison director, having observed Alfred's desperation, confusion, and pain, didn't need anybody to convince him that there had been a terrible mistake. But beyond that unexpected source of support, it was an uphill battle for Matthew. Slowly but surely, well-connected friends of the Dreyfus family began sowing seeds of doubt in the minds of those they knew. One of the Dreyfus's family friends, a doctor named Gibert, happened to be the former physician to the president of France, Félix Faure. When the doctor brought up the subject of Dreyfus's conviction in conversation with his former patient, asking whether or not the Bordereau and the handwriting samples were really enough to convict a man, the president leaned in. My good man, he was convicted on the basis of items communicated to the judges in the deliberation room, items that could be shown to neither the defendant nor his lawyer for reasons of state. Upon hearing Dr. Giber's report, Matthew was astonished. Here at last was the missing jigsaw piece, a secret file. Thanks to the gossip of those same judges, news of the secret folder and its contents had spread throughout the government. Until finally, Dreyfus's lawyer, Edgar Demange learned that his client had been condemned on the basis of a secret document referring only to some scoundrel D. Matthew was astonished, angry, and determined. If the government was going to sweep his brother under the rug, Matthew was going to put his brother on the front page. So Matthew leaked a rumor to the press that his brother had escaped from prison. Just like that, Dreyfus the Forgotten, Dreyfus the Abandoned, was front-page news. On first glance, it looks almost as though Matthew's plan backfired, because all of the headlines were against his brother. But listen carefully to this sentence from one prominent editorial. If this doubt in favor of the traitor should continue to grow, it would be appropriate to very frankly reveal on what irrefutable grounds the court-martial based its decision. A week later, the same newspaper received word, possibly leaked by Commandant Henry himself, of a letter coded in the manner of the German embassy. Such was the reason for which the letter was transmitted to the judges of the court-martial in secret in the deliberation room, out of the presence even of the accused. There, the secret was out. Somewhere in the government was a secret file on Alfred Dreyfus, and the public wasn't supposed to know about it. Regardless of how people felt about Dreyfus, you can see how this is going to play out in the public. A few days later, the most widely read newspapers in France published a letter written by Alfred Dreyfus's wife, Lucy, to Parliament, in which she expressed her astonishment to learn of a secret file of documents incriminating her husband which had never been shared with Alfred or his lawyer. I refused to believe that such could be the case, Lucy wrote, and I expected the denial. But the denial did not come. Subjected for almost two years now to the most cruel martyrdom, as is he in whose innocence my faith remains absolute, I have restricted myself to silence, despite all the odious and absurd slander propagated amid the public and in the press. Today it is my duty to break that silence and without commentary without recrimination I address myself to you gentlemen the only power to whom I can resort and I demand justice Lucy Dreyfus Meanwhile the courageous colonel Picard found himself unable to follow his instructions and quote, "keep the two affairs separate" He continued to investigate what he considered the Dreyfus Affair and the Esteragy Affair, discussing the matter with the insane blabbermouth Alphonse Bertillon, as well as with his friend, the lawyer, and this is a difficult name to pronounce, Louis Leblois. By the time Picard realized he was surrounded by enemies above and below, it was too late. Surprise! Picard received a shiny new assignment. In Tunisia. While the section of statistics waited for Picard to board a train, they wrung their hands. What if he was onto them? What if he saw through the clumsy forgeries in those diplomatic letters? Had he told anyone? With the Dreyfus affair back in the paper and possibly the court, with the entire nation straining to catch a glimpse of that secret folder, would its contents be enough? On November 1st, one and a half years after Dreyfus had arrived to Devil's Island, Commandant Henry, of the section of statistics, took matters into his own hands. He decided to work from home that day, and he brought home a selection of the newest arrivals from Madame Bastian's sack of scraps. As usual, the German military attaché Schwarzkappen had been writing to his diplomatic and romantic partner at the Italian embassy, Alessandro Panizardi. Also, as usual, Schwartzkoppen was still tearing up his mail and carelessly tossing them into the trash. This time, however, Schwartzkoppen had also tossed out an envelope sent by Panizardi from the Italian embassy, with Panizardi's seal still on the outside of the envelope. Henry sat down with a bit of graph paper, just like the kind that Panizardi used, and very quietly, very carefully, he composed a fake letter to Schwartzkoppen. It read. I have read that a deputy is to pursue questioning about Dreyfus. If Rome is asked for new explanations, I will say that I never had any relations with the Jew. If they ask you, say the same, for no one must ever know what happened with him. Henry carefully assembled the letterhead of an actual letter from Panizardi with the letter he had just written in his own living room and taped it together. If you're thinking, wow, it's really impressive that he managed to make that forgery— no, no it's not. The forgery was clumsy and obvious. If you looked closely, Panizardi's graph paper was ruled with purple ink, while Henry's graph paper was ruled with blue. What's worse, the squares on the graph paper didn't even line up. Nevertheless, the next morning when Henry rushed to see the Chief Commander Boidef with his discovery, everyone was very relieved at this convenient finding. Someone made a deliberately terrible copy of the forged letter in hopes of hiding its obviousness, and this copy was placed into Dreyfus's secret file with signatures from all the section of statistics as well as the second-in-command of the armed forces testifying to its authenticity. Those signatures were the final proof. Military command had now entered the section of statistics conspiracy. Meanwhile, poor Picard's fate was being further sealed by those beneath him. Back at the section of statistics, Commandant Henry must have realized he had a real taste for forgery, because he set to work whipping up incriminating documents against his boss. The intent was to show that Picard was part of the giant Jewish syndicate, which was supposed to be behind the entire dastardly crime, not to mention any discussion of Dreyfus's innocence. After cooking up a note which seemed to imply that a network of Jewish supporters were waiting for Picard before launching some secret mission around Christmas time, Henry proudly showed off his newest, quote, discovery to the Minister of War. If Picard were to try anything funny, the note might be very useful indeed. On November 10th, 1896, the conspirators picked up their morning newspaper to find their worst fear splashed on the front page, a leaked copy of the Bordereau. All around the country, individual readers could look at the incriminating document attributed to Alfred Dreyfus, which outlined all the various state documents the spy was enclosing to the Germans. Matthew Dreyfus shouted with joy, Right away, he ran to the print shop and ran off posters showing the bordereaux side by side with samples of Alfred Dreyfus' own handwriting, posting the comparisons all over Paris and letting passersby on the street draw their own obvious conclusion. Meanwhile, back at the German embassy, Colonel Schwarzkoppen was choking on his tea. At long last, the mysterious Dreyfus affair made sense to him, he never had contact with any Dreyfus, he didn't understand what the French were playing at and he assumed the whole affair had nothing to do with him. But when he opened up his copy of the paper, Schwartzkoppen realized at once that his spy Esterhazy, was the real culprit and that Dreyfus, whoever the poor guy was, had been sent off to a desert island in Esterhazy's place. At that moment in time. Schwarzkappen could have revealed the truth of Dreyfus's innocence and Esteragy's betrayal, and to his credit, Schwarzkappen struggled with this moral dilemma. Sure, he was a spy, but he didn't go around imprisoning innocent men. But at the end of the day, Schwarzkappen was a German intelligence agent, and the needs of Germany came before the needs of France. He kept silent. Meanwhile, across town, the Minister of War was convinced Picard was behind the leak. Nobody suspected the truth. In fact, one of the handwriting experts called in during the original trial of Alfred Dreyfus had managed to hang on to his copy of the Bordereau. Now that the public interest in Dreyfus's case had revived, the expert had seen a chance to make a little side money and sold his copy. It would be a long time before this riddle was solved, and in the meantime, before the year was over, Picard would find himself on a boat the last honest man in the military was gone for good. After a year in Tunisia, Picard was granted a few days leave to visit his family in Paris. At some point during this trip, Picard wised up. Sure, since he was bored to death in Tunisia, he knew he was being punished for inquiring too deeply into the Dreyfus affair. Anyone could see that. But Picard only now realized that those he thought were his allies, like his teammates at the section of statistics, were in fact gearing up to frame him and throw him in jail like Dreyfus himself. During his stay in Paris, Picard quietly updated his will with his own side of the story, his discovery, his investigation, his reassignment. Having safely stored away his own version of the truth, Picard reached out to the only friend left he could trust, his old friend, the lawyer Louis Le Blois. Before returning to Tunisia, Picard gave his friend power of attorney and begged him to do anything in his power to protect Picard from any type of conspiracy. But he swore his lawyer to secrecy that he would never reveal Picard's discovery or the name of his suspect, Esther Agi. Once Picard sailed back to Tunisia, Le Blois was at a loss. What could he do? One day, Le Blois attended a fancy dinner where he was seated close to Auguste Scherer-Kessner, the vice president of the Senate. When Dreyfus's name came up in conversation, the vice president expressed his own doubts about Dreyfus's guilt. Le Blois ears pricked up, and a few days later, summoning his courage, LeBlois sat down to tell the Vice President of the Senate everything he knew about the Dreyfus affair. Sworn to secrecy along with LeBlois, Scherer Kessner couldn't say why he had changed his mind about Dreyfus, but he could say that he now believed Dreyfus was innocent, and he did so over and over to everyone in his social circle, which was wide and powerful. He did so to Lucy Dreyfus, offering his support to the family. And he did so at a dinner party on July 19th at the presidential palace. If you ever wanted proof of why Shearer Kessner was a top politician, here's why. Instead of confronting the president of France, Félix Féret, directly, Shearer Kessner knew the president could hand-wave it away and forget about Dreyfus entirely. Instead, Shearer Kessner sighed loudly and sadly near the president's daughter, My heart is heavy, he told the president's daughter. My conscience is racked. It's an atrocious business. Captain Dreyfus is innocent. Don't mention it to your father, for I cannot yet tell him very much. I am not free to, but have sympathy for me. You know how that story ends. Yet all of this was simply dining room talk, hidden behind the doors of the rich and powerful, away from the press, away from the public, and away from the ears of Commandant Esther At the same time the vice president of the senate was learning of his guilt, Commandant Esteragy supposed his luck was on the way up. His first cousin had died, leaving a grand fortune to his son Christian, who was 20 years old and stupid. Recognizing a swindle when he saw one, Esteragy assured his nephew that he would take good care of Christian's inheritance, managing it carefully and prudently. The gullible Christian handed his uncle 40,000 francs, Needless to say, Esteragy gambled it away in a matter of months. Life was footloose and fancy-free for old Esteragy, who had no idea that some of the most powerful politicians in France suspected him of treason. Never one to cover his tracks well, Esteragy was involving himself in scheme after scheme, and at military headquarters everyone was getting nervous. If Esteragy's guilt was revealed, everyone involved in Dreyfus's conviction would be ruined. There was only one thing to do, warn Esteragy that he was in trouble. When the section of statistics slipped Esteragy a note, he reacted in a cool, calm, collected manner without betraying any sort of nervousness. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. He freaked out, he ran out of the house, withdrawing money from the bank, running into the local newspapers to hear the gossip, and then, I am not kidding you, visiting the German embassy to speak with Colonel Schwarzkappen. At this point, I'm pretty sure half the conspiracy was having a stroke, while the other half were wondering whether it might be more convenient to have the idiot killed off instead. Nevertheless, the next morning, Esther Agis was met by two officers of the section of statistics, including good old Commandant Patty de Clam, this time dressed as a Prussian officer and sporting a fake black beard, because why not? The two officers reassured Esteragy that as long as he did what they said, he'd be safe. Over the next few months, the section of statistics would meet frequently with Esteragy, planning and plotting a way to thwart any investigation which might expose the conspiracy. At this point, it's worth stepping back. Let's really take a look at what happened. At this moment in French history, the deputy chief of the general staff and the head of the French intelligence service reached out to a German spy to warn him of his arrest and actively worked to protect him from being discovered. Two branches of the French government were colluding in acts of treason to cover up a conspiracy carried off in part by the Minister of War. Together, the military, the Secret Service, and the traitor forged evidence, brainstormed alibis, and planted suspicion about Picard and anyone else who might seek to unravel their conspiracy. If you think that's bad enough, it's about to get worse. Esther Agy decided to go all in, drunk on confidence thanks to his protectors, and he wrote directly to the President of France. In his letter, Esther Agis alludes to having in his possession a certain photograph of a certain document stolen by Captain Picard, which, if it were to get leaked to the newspaper, would be very embarrassing to everybody in the government. If I receive neither support nor justice, or if my name comes to be mentioned, this photograph, which is presently in safekeeping abroad, will be immediately published." Soon thereafter, the Minister of War sent a telegram to Tunisia to investigate what kind of document could have been stolen by Picard. In other words, in November 1897, the President of France and the French Minister of War submitted to being blackmailed by a suspected spy and gave in to his demands to be protected. Meanwhile, the whole time Esteragy was securing the support of the President and the Minister of War, he and Commandant Henry were, you guessed it, forging more evidence, this time making it look as though Picard himself had created the Petite Bleu letter with Esteragy's name on the envelope, the discovery which had first cast suspicion on Esteragy to begin with. In other words, they forged telegrams to make it look as though someone else had forged a telegram. What a mess. Nevertheless, at this moment, it seemed as though it might all work out. Picard was in Tunisia, with enough fake evidence to throw him in jail if he raised a fuss and a lawyer sworn to silence. Estragi was actively colluding with the intelligence agency, the Ministry of War, and the President of France to keep his name out of the headlines. And Dreyfus, of course, was sweating himself to death on an island in the middle of the ocean. On November 7, 1897, almost exactly one year since the newspapers published a leaked copy of the Bordereau document, a stockbroker walking down the boulevards received a crazy surprise. Looking closely at one of Matthew Dreyfus's side by side posters, comparing the handwriting of the spy in the Bordereau with the handwriting of Alfred Dreyfus, the stockbroker recognized the spy's handwriting at once. It was one of his own clients, that shady drunk, Esther Agi. The stockbroker rushed over to Matthew Dreyfus' home with a collection of his client's letters, at which point Matthew realized that his greatest hope had been fulfilled. He now knew the name of the real spy. Setting up a meeting with the vice president of the Senate, who was still sworn to secrecy by Colonel Picard's lawyer, Matthew stated flat out, I am going to tell you the name of the traitor. It is Esther Agi. The vice president broke down with relief. At last, the terrible burden of his secret had been lifted without his having to break any of his promises. Picard's lawyer, LeBlois, and Dreyfus's lawyer, Dimange, could meet and plan their next course of action together. Matthew Dreyfus published a letter in all the major papers addressing the Minister of War directly and the entire population of France indirectly, saying, I have the honor of informing you that the author of that document is Monsieur le Comte Valsen-Esteragy. I cannot doubt, Mr. Minister, that knowing the author of the treason for which my brother was convicted, you will act swiftly that justice be done. Unfortunately, the conspiracy was ready for this. Esteragy's initial inquest was a sham. With the chief commander of the armed forces putting his full weight behind Esteragy's innocence, the military investigator was led to believe that Esteragy was innocent and that in fact Picard was guilty of framing Esteragy, just as the section of statistics had intended. Meanwhile, during the entire inquest, Esteragy continued having his weird meetups with the section of statistics officers. These meetups were coordinated by his gullible nephew, Christian, still convinced his uncle was keeping an eye on his inheritance. By the end of the inquest, the investigator himself had fallen under Esteragy's spell, and any time he made an attempt to examine the true evidence up close, the Bordereau, the Petit Bleu, or, heaven forbid, any of Commandant Henry's clumsy forgeries, the chief commander would ensure the investigator that the documents were legit, but had to be kept private, you know, state secrets and all that. Matthew Dreyfus realized immediately that the trial was going to be a farce. The only spark of hope was when Esteragy's former mistress appeared with a stack of letters. Turns out, Esteragy had swindled the wrong woman, she wanted revenge. Inside the stack of letters, Esteragy rants against the French army, the French people, the French nation itself. At one point in a letter, he admits, "'Exasperated, embittered, furious in an absolutely atrocious situation, I am capable of great things given the opportunity. I would not hurt a puppy, but I would have a hundred thousand Frenchmen killed with pleasure.'" Surely that would be enough to demonstrate the kind of man Esteragy was published on the front page of the biggest newspapers, the scandalous letters were nothing. Nothing could convince the anti-Semitic papers of anything except Dreyfus's guilt. It was all a conspiracy by the Jewish syndicate. The letters are fake, wrote one paper. An expert laboratory job, wrote another. Dreyfus continues to be the traitor. The military investigator refused to examine the handwriting of the new letters. And when the confused Italian military attaché Panizardi offered to speak in court about his role in the whole mysterious affair, the chief commander himself responded. In a letter to Panizardi and the Council of Judges overseeing Esteragy's inquest, Boidef himself assured the audience that the army possessed three letters in which Dreyfus is referred to. He enclosed the incriminating letters, even though he knew they were forgeries. By the time the inquest wrapped up, Esteragy and the conspirators proposed a bold move. Writing to the military investigator, Estragi said, As an officer accused of high treason, I have a right to a court-martial, which is the highest form of military justice. Only a decision reached therein will be able to blight the most cowardly of slanderers. While the nation went wild at this supposed act of righteous bravery, Esteragy smiled to himself, knowing that the intelligence agency, the military, and the president of France himself were personally invested in his acquittal. On January 10, 1898, the court-martial of Colonel Valzen Esteragy began. Matthew and Lucy Dreyfus looked around the courtroom, and for the first time, they were able to see in person the characters who had filled in the drama of their lives these many months. Over in the witnesses' corner, one colonel stood alone from his military compatriots, with his sky-blue Algerian uniform clashing against the black of the general French officers. Here was Colonel Picard, the last honest man in the military, the man who uncovered the real traitor, the brave man without whom Matthew and Lucy would never have had a second chance to fight for Alfred's honor. Seated next to Picard was Vice President of the Senate, Scherer Kessner, the Dreyfus family's most powerful ally. Nearby sat the enormous Colonel Henry. Matthew never suspected this man was the one responsible for creating the evidence against his brother out of thin air. Next to Henry pacing back and forth was Commandant Petit de Clam, looking ridiculous as usual squinting through a monocle. Finally, everyone in the small courtroom turned towards the door, and in walked Major Esteragy himself. Recalling the trial later, Matthew would remember, he grazed me as he passed by, so narrow was the space. The source of all Matthew and Lucy's grief, the liar, the thief, the traitor of France. Who was protecting Esteragy? Why was Alfred Dreyfus the victim of this man's crime? The court-martial went exactly as planned. Estragi was calm and courteous on the stand and received murmurs of approval at the end of his interrogation. Matthew Dreyfus faced laughters and booing during his testimony. The vice president of the Senate received an unspeakable amount of disrespect from the military officers in the, in the room. Picard was interrupted and harshly interrogated so frequently that even one of the judges intervened. When Matthew leaned over to thank Picard for his testimony, Picard replied, You have no reason to thank me. I was obeying my conscience. But it was all to no avail. After three whole minutes of deliberation, the verdict returned. Esther was acquitted. For a second time, Alfred Dreyfus was found guilty. The next day, Picard would be arrested and Schurr-Kessner would be stripped of the vice presidency of the Senate. Esther Agy left the courtyard to find over a thousand enthusiastic supporters cheering stretching out their hands smiling escorting him home that night the Dreyfus family gathered in their solitude their worst fears realized the conspiracy had won there was nothing left that they could do nobody believed them and what's worse nobody cared they were alone it was over Little did they know, across town at that very moment, their savior was sitting down in front of his typewriter, and two days later, the Dreyfus affair would explode. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. My name is Diana, and this is a one-woman show. I write, research, and produce every episode. This week, I'll begin adding all kinds of material related to the Dreyfus affair on the show's website at www.thelandofdesire.com, including pictures of the evidence used at trial and even a photograph of how Dreyfus's island jail cell looks today. If you enjoyed today's show, please help me spread the word by rating and reviewing the show on iTunes and mentioning the show on social media, including Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or even Reddit more people ought to know about the Dreyfus Affair, and you can help them find out. Thank you so much for your support, and I hope you join me again in two weeks for the next installments of our series, The Dreyfus Affair.